With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. The slaughter of black Americans has a long history in this country. While the nation is still grappling with the aftermath of the mass shooting in Buffalo, the victims and descendants of the Tulsa race massacre are still fighting for justice more than a century later. How is it that our government in a matter of days can marshal billions of dollars, can go and visit, can do everything for Ukraine, but in over 100 years, almost 101 years next week, have not done one thing for Tulsa, haven't provided one penny for Greenwood, have not provided any level of justice for survivors and descendants in this community. The Tulsa massacre and the long battle for justice coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. Black communities have long been targets of white violence. The slaughter of 10 people, many of them elders, in Buffalo is just the latest example. Although a single gunman is in custody in that case, for centuries, this kind of violence was deliberately overlooked or even orchestrated by local white leaders. Perhaps the most notorious example is the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. In the summer of that year, the Greenwood community, known then as the Black Wall Street, was attacked by its white neighbors. Hundreds of people were brutally murdered. Many more were injured, and a once thriving community was burned to the ground, its assets destroyed, and remaining wealth seized by government or financial institutions. While many white leaders long denied the slaughter or mislabeled it as a race riot, there has been a steady fight to honor the victims and survivors of Tulsa and to win some measure of justice for them and their descendants. In fact, just this month, a court ruled that a lawsuit seeking reparations for Tulsa can move forward. The man leading that suit is Demario Solomon Simmons. He's a civil rights attorney and the managing partner of Solomon Simmons Law in Oklahoma, and he joins us now on A Word. Demario, thanks for joining us today. Jason, I'm excited to be here with you, brother. You're not just a lawyer for the Tulsa victims. You're actually a member of this community. Just tell me, What's the most important thing that most Americans don't understand about what happened in Tulsa in 1921? What's something that you still think people kind of overlook or haven't paid attention to or don't realize was the case? Well, they don't realize the the scope and magnitude of what happened. As you stated uh, in your opening, massacres and destruction of black bodies and black cities and black wealth is as American as American pie, right? So this Tulsa is not unique for that particular standpoint. But what makes Tulsa so unique is that the scope and the scale of the destruction. We're talking about 40 blocks, city blocks. We're talking about 10 to 15,000 permanent residents, but at any time there were 20 to 25,000 people in Greenwood. Over 1,500 homes were destroyed. Over 200 businesses were destroyed. According to Harvard University, conservatively, $200 million in property damage alone. That's not talking about the loss of lives, which is really untold. We don't know the amount of lives that were lost. 
Some people estimate it to be 300. We think it's in the thousands. We do know that people will just disappear. They were never heard from again. And I think people really not understand the scope and scale of the destruction and how the destruction of Greenwood, the black Wall Street, as some people call it, of America, how it impacted not just black people in Oklahoma, but the entire African-American community of this nation. How did you become the attorney for the survivors. I want to be very, very clear. I'm just standing on the shoulders of a long line of advocates and attorneys, those starting with B.C. Franklin and his law partners on June 2nd, 1921. I don't even want to go back a couple of days during the massacre. I want to make it very clear. You asked another thing that people don't know about this. Our community fought. They were overran. They were outgunned. They were outnumbered. But the black men, who many of them were World War I veterans, they fought to the death to protect their properties, their children, and their women. And they did that. And I'm so proud to be from a community of people that started fighting from the day it started. But after the massacre ended, about 24 hours of destruction, people started filing lawsuits literally days later. B.C. Franklin, famous lawyers, a very famous picture, heartbreaking picture of this lawyer and his law partner and his legal clerk practicing law after the massacre in a tent with whatever remaining law books he had because everything else had been destroyed and burnt down. And so lawsuits have been filed since that day. Over 100 or so lawsuits have been filed and they've all been dismissed. And how I got involved in this was, like you said, I'm an eighth generation Oklahoma. My family's been here since the Trail of Tears, Black Creek ancestry. I didn't know anything about the massacre. I went to school on Greenwood Avenue at Carver Middle School. I went to school at Booker T. Washington High School, the pride of Greenwood in North Tulsa, and I didn't know anything about the greatness of Greenwood or the massacre until I went to play fo- playing football at the University of Oklahoma, sitting in the intro to African American Studies class with Dr. Kepper Nurak Kim, and he's talking about this great community in Tulsa and what all these black folks have done, and I'm sitting in there thinking, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm from North Tulsa, and I raised my hand, and I said, man, you don't know what you're talking about. This is my community. And of course, I was wrong. He gave me all the smoke, embarrassed me. And from that day, that was 24 years ago, ever since that day, I have been obsessed with learning as much about Greenwood, the massacre, and trying to get justice for Greenwood and advocating for the policies and rebuilding of my community. At that time, we had over 150 living survivors that that we have able to find. And I got a chance to really spend time with so many of these survivors. And many of these survivors I knew my whole life. I didn't know they were survivors. I had never heard it. They had never talked about it. Because for 75 years, there was a conspiracy of silence. So this was the early 2000s. That case was filed in 2003. It was dismissed, I believe, based on racism. The legal term, the legal reasoning was a statute of limitations issue. That was bogus. 2005, we go to the United States Supreme Court and they dismissed us, quote, without comment. Then we started the legislative. You know, we started working on trying to get legislation to go. 2005, 2006, 2007. I testified at Congress. I traveled again to D.C. with survivors. We finally got a, a bill introduced by the late great Representative John Conyers. We worked really close with him. He filed a bill. We had a hearing in 2007. There was a little known Indiana representative that was at the hearing that said, you know, this is really bad. And I feel for you from a moral standpoint, but this just too long ago. You might have heard this guy's name was Mike Pence. And so our bill didn't go anywhere, you know, and so we introduced it. It was introduced for uh, seven years straight to 2014. It didn't go anywhere. It didn't go anywhere. And our survivors were dying, 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 dying. So we were down to less than 10 or so known survivors 
uh, around 2016, 2015, 16. And so we're just trying to figure out at this time, you know, now I'm not a baby lawyer. I'm not a law student. I'm 15 years into my career. I'm writing blogs. I'm still traveling the nation, talking about this issue, giving presentations. But it's like, what can we do to actually get real justice? And 2019 in May, the Tulsa Chamber of Commerce, knowing that the 100-year centennial was coming, the city decided we're going to put together this marketing plan to say that Tulsa's moved on. They called it hashtag Tulsa Triumphs. That infuriated me to a point. I said, I'm going to file a lawsuit. I don't care if I have a theory or not. <laughs> I'm filing something. This is ridiculous. We pulled together a couple of the other lawyers. It was a small group of us. And we started researching. And then we looked at this opioid case that the state of Oklahoma was utilizing the Oklahoma public nuisance statute. And that statute is 111 years, 12 years old from 1910. And we looked at the statute and we said, we fit right perfectly in this. We can do this. And we researched that claim for a year. And we filed this current lawsuit on September 1st, 2020. Most people thought this was crazy. This was novel. We were just trying to get publicity. But we believed that this claim was a good, solid legal claim. And we litigated over the last, what, 18 months or so. The defendants tried to kick us out of court. On May 2nd, 2022, we made history. For the first time in over 100 years, a, a, a lawsuit for survivors and descendants related to the Tulsa Race Massacre is going to move forward in some form or fashion. So you found this statute that sort of fits in the opioids from 1910, so it's over 100 years old. When you filed the lawsuit in 2020, who were you suing and what are you actually asking for? So number one, the public nuisance statute from, from 1910 has been used thousands of times in Oklahoma. I want to be very clear about that. This is not something that, oh my God, they're trying to do something special for these Negroes. No, we're utilizing a law that's been used for things such as public oil spills, sanitation issues, smoking indoors, or there's even a Supreme Oklahoma Supreme Court case about a public nuisance because a person had 40 cats in their home. My point is, it has been used from a wide variety of fact patterns. Okay, that's number one. Number two, let me break it down real clear and simple for anyone that's listening. A public nuisance is anything that causes is a criminal activity or causes damages to property or makes property uninhabitable. So let's think about this. Think about the oil spill that happened down in New Orleans a couple years ago, the BP oil spill. And we all saw those pictures and that oil just, I mean, just like a jet engine coming down into the ocean. That's the start of the nuisance. So the first thing you have to do is you got to plug that hole. But when you plug that hole, that oil has still been polluted into the, to the water. It's still washed on shore. It still has covered the animals. It's still polluting drinking water. That's the nuisance. So until that oil is completely eradicated and it stops polluting, killing, and uh, hurting the environment and people, the nuisance is ongoing. And so as long as the nuisance is ongoing, be it one year, 10 years, or 100 years, in our case, then there is a statute, the statute of limitations does not apply. So we're simply saying, and we can prove, I mean, no one can even just, no one can even uh, argue it, that the massacre was a nuisance. The city of Tulsa, who we are suing, the Chamber of Commerce, who we are suing, the Tulsa County, who we're suing, Tulsa Sheriff's Office, the Oklahoma National Guard, Tulsa Metropolitan Planning Area Commission, and the Tulsa Development Authority, they all admit that 1921 happened. They all admit that the, the disparities 
and the problems that Greenwood faces today is a direct result of the 1921 Tulsa race massacre and is continuing harm. That's the same as if this oil spill, the BP oil spill, yeah, it's been plugged, but it's still causing harm, so it must continue to be abated. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, more on the Tulsa race massacre reparations lawsuit. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. This is Jason Johnson, host of A Word, Slate's podcast about race and politics and everything else. I want to take a moment to welcome our new listeners. If you've discovered a word and like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And let us know what you think by writing us at a word at slate.com. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about the century-long fight for justice for the survivors of the Tulsa race massacre. Our guest is attorney Demario Solomon Simmons. This happened in 1921. So it was 100 years last year. And you had hundreds of people who were killed, tremendous amount of violence. And you said, you know, when you first started hearing about this, when you were in college, you had over 100 survivors. How many actual survivors are there from Tulsa? Well, there are three survivors, and I'm going to tell you their names. I'm very proud to be their lawyer, but I want to be clear at the language here. It's not survivors of Tulsa, survivors of Greenwood. And I make that distinction because it was Greenwood, the black community of Greenwood that was bombed from the sky, that was burnt down, that was looted, that had its leaders either killed or exiled and never come back. Not Tulsa. And that's important because Tulsa wants to utilize the history of their perpetrating the massacre on our people to raise money for themselves. And they've done that. They've raised $30 million plus for themselves. And they've taken over so much of the Greenwood district for themselves where they own everything in Greenwood. So to your question, though, we have only three known living survivors. And I smile when I talk about them. I love them so dearly. We have our oldest living survivor, 108-year-old Viola Ford Fletcher. She came to D.C. last year with me when we testified in front of Congress. I mean, the lady is amazing. Then you have our second oldest living survivor, 107-year-old Leslie Benefield Randall. And then you have Mother Fletcher, the oldest living survivor, her baby brother, who's 101 plus. <laughs> His name is Hughes Van Ellis. We call him Uncle Red. He's not only a, a Tulsa race massacre survivor who was six months old when he was bombed and his family had to flee for their lives, 
but he's also a World War II combat veteran. And I want to say one other thing about Leslie Benefield Randall, our second oldest survivor. She was with her grandmother at the time of the massacre. Her grandmother's name was Molly Benefield. Molly Benefield was born enslaved in 1859 in Missouri. So when I was sitting with Mother, Mother Randall, we were doing her deposition, first depositions that ever happened in this case, another historic milestone. And we're talking, I'm like, man, I'm sitting with a lady whose grandmother was enslaved. And she's sitting here telling me about her, her formerly enslaved grandmother, how they were running from being bombs dropped by the city of Tulsa. Like when you think about the history of it and the connection, how close we are to our history. It's not some far distant eons and ancient history ago. Like, no, these are people that are living that went through this and were with people that were actually enslaved. You know, so I just I just always make that put a pin in that because I think we, we, we need to be very conscious about what we're talking about. Your legal efforts aren't just for the people whose family members were killed. You believe that all members and descendants of the whole community should be compensated. Why do you think there should be sort of a collective compensation? Well, it was a collective destruction. You know, there's a destruction of Greenwood. I mean, obviously the individuals were impacted, but the entire community was destroyed. And that's the beauty of our public nuisance case. It is truly a case for the community at large. That is what a public nuisance is. So in our case, when we're asking about our remedies, we're not saying that, hey, Mother Fletcher, she should receive check for X, Y, and Z, although I believe that 100%. And that is something that is part of our overall remedy scheme that we're saying there should be a victim's compensation fund. But we think that the entire community needs to be rebuilt because the entire community was destroyed. When you think about, i just give you three examples, how the decimation of Greenwood impacted the entire community, not just of Tulsa, but the entire black community for this, of our entire nation. First, let me start with Dr. A.C. Jackson. Maybe you never heard of him. He was considered the finest, quote unquote, Negro surgeon in the nation by the Mayo brothers of the Mayo Institute. That's what he trained with them. They went to him for counseling. He was the president of the Oklahoma Medical Association, not the president of the black Oklahoma Medical Association, but the entire medical association in 1920, which was extraordinary because Oklahoma was a southern segregated state. But this is how much respect and love and, and, and they had for his acumen and his skill. This is a man that ran the Booker T. Washington Hospital. This was a man that was world renowned. This is a man who was shot down with his hands in the air, shot in the stomach four or five times as he was coming out of his house. This was an eyewitness report that was, that was given by a, a white judge who was a friend of J Dr. Jackson, who went to Dr. Jackson's house to try to save him. And as he was coming out of his house with his hands up and said, hey, guys, I'm not armed. Three or four of these white terrorists, just like this guy we saw in Buffalo, said, we don't give a damn who you are. And the greatest surgeon in the nation, black surgeon, bled out over four or five hours in the concentration camps. So that means his practice went away. That means that his hospital practice went away. That means the greatness that he had to give to our community and our greater African-American community went away forever. That's, number, that's just one example. Second example, J.B. Stratford, attorney J.B. Stratford, the richest man in Greenwood, multimillionaire from the 19 teens, owned lots of real estate, including the largest African-American owned hotel in the nation. Not in Tulsa, not in Oklahoma, the largest in the nation. But he was his all his property was burnt down. He was ran out of town. 
went to Chicago and he could never come back to Tulsa because they put false felony indictments on him as being the cause of the so-called riot, as they called it. Now, imagine this. We see Marriott's all over the nation in the world. We see Hyatt's all over the nation in the world. We see Hilton, et cetera, et cetera. What about if Stratford's were all over the nation in the world and it was centered base headquarters here in Tulsa, Oklahoma? That's what we were going to. And the third example I'll give you is attorney A.J. Smitherman owned the, the first African-American newspaper, the Tulsa Star, first African-American newspaper in the nation, not in Oklahoma, in the nation to have a national circulation. This was a man who was a national leader. He was a nationally known journalist. His property was burnt down. His, his business was burnt down. He was ran. In fact, he had to go to Buffalo, New York, of all places, because he, was, he wanted to put his family close to the Canadian border because they were trying to extradite him back to Oklahoma. He could never come back. So imagine if he could have continued to be in Tulsa, continued to grow, continued. He was the first African-American newspaper in the nation with a national circulation. What that would have done for our community in Tulsa and Greenwood and for our national community. So that's where it must be a community-wide remedy and community-wide uh, collective understanding and collective rebuilding. How did the white folks who engage in this terrorism benefit from what they did to Greenwood? And what are some institutions today in Oklahoma or even nationally that got their start or benefited from that terrorist attack? The banks. Let's talk about the banks. The banks. When they went to go get their money, the surviving members of Greenwood went to the white banks to get their money. They said, hey, where are your bank book? You know, now that's something that you and I don't know much about because, you know, technology. But back then you had to have an actual document. Come in and say, this is my money is in the bank. Well, the bank books burnt up. They said, hey, sorry. And some of those banks today are owned, uh, about 12 of those banks today are owned by a little known bank you may have heard of called Chase. Chase Bank owns uh, about 12 of those banks. And there's the other bank that owns about eight of those banks is Bank of Oklahoma, another national bank. Bank of Oklahoma is based here. Obviously, Chase Bank is based in New York. But they actually held the money of, of, of survivors. They never could get their money back. Then you had insurance companies. You had insurance companies like Hartford and Chubb um, who had insurance policies that they didn't pay. And we're talking about millions of dollars in insurance policies that were not paid because they, they bogusly utilized this race riot clause. They say, oh, we can't pay because it was a riot. So this is why this whole conspiracy to call it a riot. And this is why they call things riots across the nation, because not only could they destroy our property, then they could make sure that we couldn't collect on our insurance payments. So you have these sophisticated people who had business and home and fire insurance paid their premiums and never got anything back. So it's a double whammy. So even if you were able to, to, to survive, right, if you if you somehow you didn't get shot or stabbed or burnt a bomb from the air. If somehow you were able to come back and you didn't have to be in a concentration camp where pe people were dying and living in tents for up to 18 months in the brutal Oklahoma heat and the frigid Oklahoma weather uh, winter, if somehow you survived that and now you got to try to rebuild, oh my God, you have no money. You have no insurance benefits. You're literally starting from scratch. And so that's why so many people did not get a chance to rebuild. So many people did not get a chance to come back. And that's why it is so important that not only do we fight for accountability for those who perpetrated the massacre, who still benefit from the things that they did, that we're doing our lit litigation. Through our Justice for Greenwood uh, Foundation and our project, it's also important we properly document all of the individual stories of the individual families, and we properly understand who was in Greenwood at the time. Look, we know that 10 to 15,000 residents lived in Greenwood, 
But we also know that it was 20, 25,000 people in Greenwood at any time. For your listeners who are familiar with the New York area, you know, you got the boroughs, but everybody calls Manhattan a city, right? Well, that's what Greenwood was for all these black towns that were around Oklahoma. At this time, Oklahoma, well, it still does, but it had the most all-black towns in the history of this country. And Oklahoma was a vastly more black state at that time because of the black Native Americans and all the blacks who came in during Indian Territory. You had a very substantial black population. I mean, Oklahoma almost became a black state. A lot of people don't know that. Obviously, now we only have 7% of the population is black, and part of that's because of the massacre and the continual harm. My point, Jason, is there are institutions, as you alluded to today, that are benefiting from the massacre, that they, they stole money from massacre survivors, they refused to pay insurance policies, and we've contacted many of these institutions trying to negotiate with them, but they don't want to play ball with us. So we, we, you know, we're going to have to escalate that, and maybe your audience can help us say, hey, Chase, you know you own these banks. You know what they did. Do the right thing. Bank of Oklahoma, Hartford Insurance Company, Chubb, and as many others. You mentioned something in here that I want to make sure we get to as well, this idea of you're collecting stories and information. What information are you still looking for, and who's trying to stop you? I mean, are you still trying to find minutes from white city council meetings at the time? Are you trying to find out, you know, what's the airfield that the bombers were launched from? What's the information you're finding and, and what's the holdup? All of the above. See, Jason, I know because of the last couple of years with Watchmen and Lovecraft and Trump coming to Tulsa and Centennial, this has gotten a lot, a lot of uh, airplay and a lot more people have learned, at least know it happened. First of all, it's still a significant amount of people that don't know anything about it. And then there's still, I mean, we probably only have about three to five percent of all the information that's available because the white institutions who perpetrated the mask. And I'm going to be very clear about that. This was state sponsored. It was the white government entities that uh, deputized. And I hate to even use the word mob because it was it was the city. They deputized thousands of white men and they armed them. They're very key, very important. But they have hid the information for 100 years. They have hid the fact of their involvement. We don't know the names of the perpetrators. We want to know the names of the perpetrators. We know that our survivors told us how many times they would go into the homes of white Tulsans as a repair person, as a domestic, as a delivery person, and they would see things that were stolen from their, their home, stolen from their neighbor, stolen from their you know, businesses. We want to know where that is. That's why we want to know everything about the massacre. We want to identify every family and individual that was impacted by the massacre. We want to know every individual that perpetrated the massacre. And we want those who perpetrated to be held responsible. And when I say those, I'm talking about the entities that are still living today, the perpetrators of the massacre, the city of Tulsa, the Tulsa Chamber of Commerce, the Tulsa County Sheriff's Office, Tulsa County Government, the Oklahoma National Guard, Tulsa Development Authority, and Tulsa Metropolitan Planning Area Commission. They perpetrated the massacre in the 100-plus years of continuing harm, and we want them to be held accountable. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, more with Demario Solomon Simmons about reparations for the survivors and descendants of the Tulsa Race Massacre. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., 
on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today we're talking about reparations for the Tulsa Race Massacre with attorney DeMario Solomon Simmons. So, DeMario, last year was the 100-year anniversary of the attack on Greenwood. I'm curious as to what you think about what the president did last year. Last year, the president comes and gives a speech. He talks about what happened. He says the massacre was a shame. And then he, you know, makes Juneteenth a federal holiday. What did you think of the sort of federal response to your lawsuit that you saw during the anniversary last year? Well, I'm going to answer that question by quoting or paraphrasing my client, 101-year-old Hughes Van Ellis, who said a couple of weeks ago to me, he said, you know, I'm just so disappointed in President Biden because he sat with me. He did. He sat with the survivors and he promised me he would do everything in his power to make sure I and our community gets justice. And he's done nothing. And so to hear, uh, like I say, he's a, not only is he a Tulsa Race Master survivor, he's a World War II survivor, a combat veteran. And he proudly met President Biden. He told him, I voted for you. I believe in you. I believe you'll bring justice. President Biden said to his face, I'm going to do everything in my power. And then he's done nothing. He's done zero. And for my clients, when they see how quickly the president and Congress can move to send $40 billion plus over to Ukraine, they devastated. Because as they said to me, and I wrote about this in the USA Today on March 11th op-ed. War is bad. Bombs being dropped on men, women, and children. No one wants to see that. But how is it that our government, in a matter of days, can marshal billions of dollars, can go and visit, can do everything for Ukraine, but in over 100 years, almost 101 years next week, have not done one thing for Tulsa, haven't provided one penny for Greenwood, have not provided any level of justice for survivors and descendants in this community. It is insulting, it's infuriating, it's grotesque, and it's something that is just so, I'm trying to contain myself because as I think about that, I think about Buffalo, and I think about this slaughter that's gonna happen, I think about the performative actions that's gonna happen and people gonna go and make speeches, but they're not gonna do anything. They're not going to do anything. They're not going to pass any particular policy. They're not going to put, you know, double the budget to stop domestic terrorism. They're not going to provide reparations and restorative justice for those families. They're not going to expel the members of Congress who are known open white supremacists that they could do under the 14th Amendment. They're not going to sign an executive order to say, you know what, Congress, if you want to do this, I'm going to utilize my executive power to give justice to Greenwood, to give justice to these survivors or to do, do anything. 
besides give a speech. So that's how I feel about it. That's how my clients feel about it. These people are 108, 107, and 101 plus. They've lived through everything. The president comes and nothing has changed. We are still trying to get the Department of Justice to open an investigation into the largest crime in the history of this country. The largest crime. It's the largest crime scene, right? When you're talking about in, in modern American history, right? The largest crime scene is in Tulsa, Greenwood, and it's never been investigated ever by any law enforcement agency. One of the other things that's happened, I want to make sure we get to this before we close, is there's this sort of renaissance. It happened literally within 18 months. You had two very popular television shows come out that talked about the Greenwood Massacre. You had Lovecraft Country and you had Watchmen. What impact do you think those kinds of shows have had? I mean, did that encourage you? Because it's like, okay, look, now we got national attention. We can do this suit. Or have there been some negative elements of that where it's like, okay, I think these shows, it was a good idea, but they're downplaying how bad it was or they're making this look like something that it wasn't. There are positives to the mass marketing, if, if you may, of the story and getting it more awareness throughout the nation, throughout the world. So I definitely think there's a lot of positives there, but I think there was some negatives too. And one of the negatives that people don't think about, again, is one, they exploited this history. They didn't bring anything back to Greenwood. They didn't provide any money to the survivors and descendants. You know, people like the Williams Dreamland Theater. When you watch Watchmen, the first scene is the Williams Dreamland Theater when they when the guy goes in there and he gets his wife who's playing the piano. That's the Williams Dreamland Theater. They didn't give the Williams family any money for utilizing their, their you know their theater. They didn't give anybody to my knowledge. Well, I'm gonna say to my knowledge. They didn't give anybody any descendant, any survivor, any revenue, anything off those films. I think that's a problem. I think anybody, and you see a lot of people, and we're in contact with these folks, we firmly believe and we unapologetically believe if you use Greenwood or using Tulsa in your name and your marketing, if you're not giving something back to the Greenwood community and the survivors and descendants, you are exploiting, period. That's why my little small organization, Justice for Greenwood, we're a small 501c3. We've given over $355,000 to survivors and descendants over the last year and a half. Like, you know, that's a huge amount of money for us to give. So that's why I ask you, if your listeners are listening, go to justforgreenwood.org, make a donation, help us do this work. That shouldn't be our role, but we feel like that's we want to mirror what we want other people to do. Another way that is negative and people don't think about this, when you're showing the Williams Dreamland Theater being bombed, there are Williams family members still alive. There is real trauma in this. This is not some historical incident that happened a thousand years ago. There are people's grandchildren and children still living. And so when they see that on scene, when they see that on TV, and they know that they're showing this destruction, there's no, have never been any mental health opportunities set aside for survivors of the sentence, which is something we're fighting for, something we're advocating for, something we believe must happen. And when they see that, not only are they seeing this destruction, but then they know these groups are making money off them. So it's creating harm and trauma all over again. And that, I'm so appreciative of you asking that question because it's something that people have to understand. This is real. It's just like in Buffalo. Those, when I saw the pictures of those people being killed, those mothers, and understanding that people are going to tweet about it, talk about it, but are they going to give them services? to help them really deal with the grief and help them rebuild. Are they going to do real things? And as you know, Jason, I, I do a lot of police cases and I just have to say this, the trauma that our community sees when 
White people can kill and destroy us, be it 1921 without any repercussion or Buffalo. When you see this white boy get arrested without a scratch on his head, when they roll up on, they know he didn't kill 10 black people. They, he's armed and he doesn't get shot. It's the same mentality of the 1921 Tulsa race massacre. And it's the same level of harm. You're saying, man, how can we be, how can this happen? How can this happen where this, we can be destroyed like this and it's okay? And no one is held accountable. So from 1921, uh, Greenwood Mass, Tulsa Race Massacre, as they call it in history, to Buffalo this weekend, it's the same spirit. It's the same violence that we've experienced in this country for 400 plus years. And that's why, again, I'm disappointed in Joe Biden. That's why I'm disappointed in the Department of Justice. That's why I'm disappointed in the congressional leaders, because they have not done anything to protect us. They haven't done anything to give us remedy. They haven't done anything to make sure that this does not happen again in as far as massacres or these white terrorist attacks, this can happen again. It will happen again. And not just these little small incidents. Tulsa can happen again. That's why we must have full understanding and full appreciation of Tulsa and get the full remedy of it. Demario Solomon Simmons is a civil rights attorney and the managing partner of Solomon Simmons Law. He's leading an effort to win reparations for the Tulsa Race Massacre victims. Thanks so much for joining me on The Word, man. Jason, I appreciate you and all you do for our community. And that's a word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Jasmine Ellis. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Podcasts at Slate. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for Word.